Hello, everyone, and welcome to Small Talk. This is a podcast for pediatric nurses by pediatric nurses. And my name is Denise Downey. I'm one of the co-hosts, and I'm sharing the mic today with my friends, Teresa and Kate. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Kate Donovan. I'm the Clinical Director of Innovation for the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, the Department of Pediatrics and the Simulation Program. And I'm Teresa Shannon. I'm a professional development practitioner and inpatient nurse educator at Boston Children's Hospital. Today, we're going to talk about new onset diabetes, and we're focusing on type 1 diabetes, previously known as juvenile diabetes. It's an autoimmune disease that occurs when the beta cells in the pancreas are mistakenly destroyed by the body's immune system. The cause appears to have some genetic and environmental components. The CDC reports that about 1.6 million Americans are living with type 1 diabetes, and approximately 200,000 of this group are children. Somewhere around 64,000 people are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in the United States each year. Though type 1 diabetes can be a life-threatening condition, many persons living with this diagnosis with proper education and support live a full life, achieving their goals without allowing this chronic disease to stand in their way. Joining us for this podcast are a group of subject matter experts, and I'll let them introduce themselves. We'll start with Jennifer Naughton. Hi, my name is Jen Naughton. I'm one of the nurses in the ED. I've been here at Children's for over 20 years and have had an interest in diabetes ever since I've been downstairs in the ED and have become one of the subject matter experts in the ED. Also joining us, I'll have Jean Potter, Anna Ashton, and Becky Cohen speak to their roles. Hello, my name is Jean Potter. I'm one of the inpatient diabetes nurse educators. I've been at Children's for 34 years, and I've been in the inpatient diabetes nurse educator role for the past 16 years. Hello, my name is Anna Ashton. I am the inpatient endocrinology social worker, and I have been at Children's for four years, three years in this program. Hi, my name is Becky Cohen. I'm the inpatient uh, diabetes registered dietitian. I've been at Children's for almost one year now, and my entire time I've been in this role. Thank you, guys. Often we see children presenting to the emergency room with um, signs and symptoms of new onset diabetes. Jen, can you tell us a little bit about um, the symptoms and what you see in the emergency room? Most of the new onsets come through us in the ED, usually presenting from their PCP office with maybe increased urination, increased thirst, weight loss. And typically a blood glucose is checked in the office that they find is elevated and they'll send them in for emergency care in the ED in the beginning of their journey with this new diagnosis. We also do get some kids that come in from outside hospitals, you know, in DKA or with these, you know, the initial workup as well. But I would say most come in through triage and present with those symptoms. From that point, we do our typical triage and they're roomed in the back and then the workup begins for the patient and family. Typically, it starts with the RN assessment and the physician assessment and then we obtain blood work and an IV just to determine um, which path they will take, whether they are a new onset not in DKA or a new onset in DKA, which then guides their management from there. Ken, does a patient ever get diagnosed with diabetes just with one high glucose number? 
I feel like they get sent in with that mostly. And then we obtain a series of labs to determine, you know, we look at their hemoglobin A1C and other labs to make that diagnosis. So there's a lot of blood drawing that happens and a lot of time kind of waiting for all these results to come back, or do you just go ahead and start treating them anyway, I think? It's history, it's labs, and then it's consulting with the endocrine team to help us determine what the next steps in our management will be. And typically, many of these children are presenting with the classic symptoms as Jen reviewed. With those classic symptoms, a random blood glucose over 200 and an A1C that is uh, greater or equal to 6.5%, then that's going to establish the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. There's other autoimmune markers that Jen was referring to other lab work that come in later to seal that diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. You both mentioned DKA. Can you explain to our listeners what DKA is and how it's managed? So diabetic ketoacidosis, DKA, it's a life-threatening situation for the child presenting. Um, With that, typically you're going to see these children presenting with additional symptoms that Jen expanded on with high blood glucose, but you're going to see abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Um, You could see what's called Kussmaul respirations, which are deep, rapid breathing, and uh, they're very lethargic. So it's definitely a a much sicker picture than somebody who's coming in from a a well visit that had a, you know, a high blood glucose noted um, at the PCP's office or some of the more general symptoms. So with DKA, the first thing is really focusing on IV fluid therapy. Really, the patients are presenting uh, dehydrated, they have electrolyte abnormalities, and it's really enhancing that fluid volume again and focusing on that really like for the first hour. And Jen, I know you can expand on this too, um, since you're seeing these patients right in the emergency room. But after, you know, the fluid volume um, depletion needs to be corrected. And then one or two hours after the IV fluid is started with some boluses and other fluid management, calculating the fluid deficits, then the insulin infusion, the IV insulin infusion will begin. And these are all based on recommendations from endocrine to stabilize the child. And I would just add, you know, we really look at the lab values to look at their pH and their bicarb to determine and their blood glucose to determine if they are in DKA. We follow specific specific criteria. That first hour is typically a 10 ml per kilo bolus and you run that whole bolus over an hour. We want to fluid resuscitate, but we don't want to do it too fast or too much too quickly in the pediatric population. At that second hour is when the IV insulin is introduced and we have clinical practice guidelines we follow, but um, it's very stringent lab draws and checks hourly blood glucoses and blood gases and electrolytes are checked very frequently every hour. And then we manage their fluids based on what their potassium is and what their blood glucose is. And that's a whole new system that we now use downstairs. We call it a two bag method for um, DK. And that's something we've been doing probably over the last couple years, but it has really improved our management with the DK population. Jen, you mentioned giving IV fluid. What would happen if we gave IV fluid too quickly? So we have concerns for um, cerebral edema with um, 
introducing fluids too quickly, and I believe it's based on electrolyte shifts. Maybe Jean can help me with that one. That is our concern. We don't want to rapidly rehydrate. We want to rehydrate over that hour. We usually, at that second point where they are typically so dehydrated, we look into whether or not they need a second fluid bolus, but our initial hour management is typically a 10 ml per kilo bolus. So for these patients, you're really, as far as nursing goes, assessing their mental status and you're watching for signs of fluid overload? Yes, very close, you know, neuro checks and management with these patients. Mm -hmm. If the patient does develop cerebral edema, can either, either of you speak to what the treatment would be, treatment plan would be for that? We would give mannitol if we needed to, if the patient was in that poor of a situ, you know, situation, depending clinically how they are. And that is a, an IV infusion as well that we can give to help pull off some of the fluid. And the rate of the IV infusion of the fluids would be decreased usually by 50% um, while they're providing mannitol and continued observation of the patient's status to um, reduce any more complication with the cerebral edema. And then once a patient's stabilized, a, a CAT scan would be performed too, just to make sure the patient is okay. Mm -hmm. Identify other risks. So is this cerebral edema something that would happen really quickly or something that was a little more insidious? It Usually the patient is gonna show some symptoms. It can happen rapidly. Um, Jen may have seen this a little bit more than I have because I don't always see the patients when they are being admitted in DK, but they would show symptoms. You know, they may have headache, mental status changes, more tiredness, and really um, some patients may be brought in with those symptoms already being more obtunded. And that would be a situation that would be evaluated right away. But a slow progression, you should be able to see those symptoms and pick up on it and prevent further progression with uh, decreasing the IV fluid rates and proceeding with mannitol, as Jen mentioned. So would every patient who is in DKA get an insulin infusion as opposed to sub-Q? The clinical practice guidelines mentioned the IV infusion of insulin, and that's pretty much the standard way of giving it. There may be exceptions with some patients that are very mild DKA, and so it could be treated differently, but according to the clinical uh, pathway at this point for DKA, IV infusion is recommended after the initial IV fluid bolus, the normal saline bolus. To speak to mild DKA, we do have a rate that is, we run the insulin, you know, a lower rate than if they meet the criteria for mild DKA. And then once the patient is stabilized in the ER, then what happens? After they're stabilized in the ED, depending on um, if they're DKA or not in DKA, um, they'll either go to the floor if they're not in DKA, or they'll go to the ICP if they are in DKA. And if they are not in DKA, we give them their sub-Q insulin. We start their Lantus, which is their long-acting <laughs> insulin, and then we calculate a correction factor and a carb ratio and administer those as long as the patient is eating and meets criteria for needing both of those. And then they're generally admitted to the floor from there. Jen, you, you mentioned that generally they're admitted to the floor. Do you ever see patients being discharged directly from the ED? So there's a new pilot that endocrine is involved with. If patients meet very specific criteria that has been determined by the endocrine team, 
they will fall into what they call this no admit diabetes treatment pathway where they will receive their outpatient management through the CAT-CR for the next two days and receive all of their teaching and supplies and information they need to care for their child at home. For us in the ED, we provide them with a teaching sheet that tells them everything that they need to bring for the next visit, who they need to contact if anything is to occur or change overnight and all the numbers and information they need, they have upon discharge. They also get, I believe it's about 50% less of a dose of Lantus than we would give to someone that is getting admitted upstairs. So those are how they change the pathway if we're gonna send them home. I'm curious, why is the dose of Lantus half the dose if they're going home? It's for safety because the family has not received instruction on how to monitor the child's blood glucose. And so it's very protective so that they have some insulin overnight, but at a safe dose so that the risk for hypoglycemia would be much less since they're not getting that frequent monitoring as a patient would in the inpatient setting. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I was just curious too, if what, what is the criteria that you all use for determining whether a patient um, qualifies to be discharged to the diabetes day treatment program versus going to one of the inpatient units? So there, there's medical criteria and um, social criteria that's looked at uh, for the no admit pathway and also for day treatment when they're going from the inpatient setting as well. But the medical criteria for the no admit pathway is basically a, a child with new onset diabetes in very stable condition, not in diabetic ketoacidosis, obviously, a beta hydroxybutyrate level that is less than uh, one millimole per liter. So this is kind of confirmation that the child is not acidotic. You know, there's COVID testing now, which is done on patients. So it's either screening or a negative test. So a negative screen or a negative test. And the social reasons, um, the criteria that needs to be met is that the child should be um, three years or older for their age to participate in the no admit pathway. Um, English or Spanish speaking, we are able to obtain access to a Spanish interpreter if a family needs that, but we don't have other language, committed language support for other languages aside from Spanish. Also, the family needs to be able to understand how to contact the endocrine um, doctor on call overnight if there are issues and also be able to commit to arriving at the scheduled time in the CAT-CR for the day one of teaching the following morning. I can speak a little more to some of the psychosocial criteria that uh, Jean outlined. A lot of them are similar between uh, the no admit pathway and day treatment, but no admit we're, we're still working on um, just because of course the family is not receiving really any education. And so we have to make sure that they're comfortable you know, going home and, and we'll be able to get back to the hospital. In some cases they can't. So for the day treatment program, when they're admitted for one day of education and then go home after dinner and come back the next morning to an outpatient setting, there were those criteria that Jean mentioned. So greater than or greater than or equal to three years old or older. And that's really just because it can be very hard for a young child to focus and stay occupied when their parents are trying to learn in an outpatient setting particularly because, you know, we can't say, oh, let's wait till they're, they've calmed down or they're, they're okay. There's a lot more of a time limit on the education times. The ability to arrive on time, just as, as Jean had mentioned, occasionally families live very far away. They don't have access to a car. 
Uh, they've got childcare issues that mean that they can't arrive on time. The English and Spanish piece that Jean spoke to, and then uh, something that I'm quite heavily involved in is just ensuring there aren't any immediate safety concerns for the child. That can most obviously include DCF involvement, any severe mental health concerns that are disrupting care, or you know, if, if the parent, which can definitely happen, is really struggling with the diagnosis and coping and needs more time to process before they can really take on this intensive education. Major learning barriers is another one um, that the DNEs really suss out with their health literacy tool, because all that, that just means that you won't get through the full day one education or they have to go home. Uh, and be able to reach out and address emergency diabetes situations. And then something I also look into is occasionally families are pretty shocked by the diagnosis and depending on their background or their past experiences with hospitals or doctors or sometimes the cultural piece, sometimes they are not sure that you've got the diagnosis right and they don't want to go on insulin. They don't want to start this whole process. And so that takes a little more in-depth consideration and, and discussion um, and we don't want to rush them through the first day and have them go home if they don't even agree with what we're what we're kind of focused on on teaching them. So that's another one. And then my last one is just particularly during the past year with the pandemic, uh, any major financial concerns, insurance may not be active, uh, and that's something that we can help them with. We can get free care if we need to, but if that's going to be an issue that prevents families from having access to the prescriptions they'll need the next day, that's a big one that we want to try and address. Uh, and sometimes we can, and they can still go to day treatment, but often it takes a little longer. And that's, I kind of group that under a safety concern, because if they don't have access to insulin, then that's a big problem. That's my sort of psychosocial fleshing out of those, those details. There's definitely a lot of components and elements to take into consideration. Speaking to nurses that work in either the ICU, ICP, emergency department, or inpatient unit where we see these patients, how do we best partner with the DNE social work and nutrition teams to assure the patients and families' education and psychosocial needs are being met? Yeah, I think something that I find really helpful because you guys are at the bedside and seeing the family consistently is just letting us know if you notice, you know, any particular concerns that the family has, any sometimes misconceptions about the diagnosis, things that we should make sure that we reiterate and address so that we can make them feel comfortable and know that they're in the right place, they're getting the care that they need. There are a lot of, um, again, sometimes a cultural piece, different ideas about insulin and people thinking that insulin causes certain sequelae of diabetes or whatever the case may be. And so if you notice things like that, just letting us know so that we can make sure we attend to those details uh, is really helpful, just so we can focus our education and also our emotional support. We have people coming in with parents who have had severe lows and they're terrified of that and that's their main focus. And so, all right, that's good to know. We wanna make sure that we speak in a way that doesn't amplify that fear and simultaneously addresses it. So I think that's a, a really, you guys are a huge source of information for us. So that's kind of my big one. And then I'll, I'll let Jean and Becky talk. Yeah, it, it really is a collaborative process because from the time that the families, you know, enter into the hospital through the emergency room and to the inpatient setting, or even, you know, the no admit pathway, you know, there's so much information that the families are sharing and making sure that that is communicated to all team members is so important so that we can really individualize our approaches 
and um, be consistent with families in, in terms of what they need. We each have our part of what we need to do to help support the families with, with education and coping, to, you know, really to get the um, started with, with a, a new routine. And you know, a lot of these families, depending on what time they come into the ED, um, you know, the late hours of being admitted to the inpatient setting or up all night with the frequent monitoring um, and management of the DKA and all the stressors associated with that. So it really takes very thorough communication before anybody on the inpatient team meets with the family for the first time. We are always touching base with the nurses and other team members to kind of get a better picture and sense of the family before we go meet the family and have our introductions and develop a plan for the day. I think for us downstairs, we like to loop you guys in as quickly as we can. You know, if you are available on the Deanna, you know, aspect of things, if you're not in with families doing teaching upstairs, we like to try to get you guys down there if we can, because the families have so many questions and it's an emergency department. We are not specialized in treating diabetes. We take care of every diagnosis that walks through the hospital. So we are not experts in it downstairs. And and I think you guys are, and we like to rely on you guys when we can and provide them with as much emotional support and education that we can downstairs to kind of get them off on the right foot, so to speak, for what's to come in the next couple of days. I always tell families right from triage when they walk in, I give them a stack of paper and a pen and just say, start jotting things down. If you have questions, write them down because so many people are in and out of your rooms and then you realize, oh, I wish I asked that question. And I will tell you almost everyone that walks in with this new diagnosis, that's how I started off with them because it's information overload for these families and they're scared. And it's our job to provide them with as much information that they can process at the time, but also the information they need to safely care for their kids. So, but I think collaboration is huge and we heavily rely on you guys upstairs as resources. And I agree. Thank you, Jen, because I, there's several times that we are getting pages from the emergency room, um, identifying the arrival of a family with new onset diabetes. And if we have time, we do come down to the emergency room to meet those uh, families, just to provide some introductory edu education, more to review the plan for their hospital stay and just get them started with some introductory pieces, hopefully just to provide support and alleviate some of their fears. But as Jen said, this is very overwhelming for families. Um, they, they are scared, they're overwhelmed, and just having that support and that team approach to let the family know it's, it's gonna be okay, but to give them the information along the way helps build up their knowledge slowly, and, and the support is so essential. And we all do that through uh, collaborative practice, absolutely. And I would say, given your experiences, if you could speak to the bedside nurse and say one thing that would be super helpful for the bedside nurse to do in preparation for maybe their admission or their discharge home, knowing they're coming into the day program, what is the number one thing that you would like nurses to be sure to do in their short time with the patient? Uh, I got one. <laughs> is that okay? I say this is important, but it's not something that people don't do. We just keep doing it. 
which is just, I think people don't quite click when it comes to these are the teaching times and you need to be there for those. And and if you aren't, then we might not get everything done today and, and we might not be able to send you to the day treatment program. And I totally get that. Most hospitalizations do not involve four hours of education. And so just just reinforcing those those education times um, and sort of connecting it to the plan so that they understand why we're being insistent. And it's, you know, obviously if they need to take a break and we, we want them to take care of themselves, but uh, just letting them know why we choose, choose those times and, and what we're hoping to do to try and get them out of the hospital if that's what they'd like to do and that's where they're headed. It really is having the parents present for the day. We really need them for two days. And so they may not know the specific times of when everybody's going to meet. You know, we want them there in the morning for breakfast skills as they're going to start learning right away with the nurses at the bedside and continue with the appointments with members of the diabetes team for education during the day and on the second day as well. So it's being present and kind of having that knowledge that they, they need to be there. And that helps our team be able to navigate the times a little bit more with the family understanding, okay, I need to be here. And not that I can go home for a few hours, come back and go home. So it, it really helps us all work together. I will agree with Jean and Anna here. I think it it really does help the day go more smoothly. And I think also reinforcing to parents that, especially with older children, that they will still be the ones who are responsible for learning these skills, even if they are confident that their child can carb count. Um, You know, it's still important that the parents are really there building these skills as well. And I think just from a nutritional perspective, any reinforcement that nursing can give that, you know, families don't be need, need to be scared uh, about eating. You know, there's oftentimes a lot of fear that comes up around food and, and certain foods. So any reinforcement that there's no special diabetes diet is, is really helpful. And teaching is, it's really ongoing throughout the day. It's not just with um, the diabetes nurse educator and nutrition and, and social work, um, they're assessing and supporting the family as they, you know, learn all of this new information. We appreciate and, and totally rely on the nurses to be teaching at the bedside, um, reinforcing the skills education and allowing the family to practice so that their knowledge and skill ability is further enhanced. And that's a big part of it. That's, it's, it's not a break. Um, it's really can be a very overwhelming experience for families to have this comprehensive education throughout the day, but the nurses are essential at the bedside for supporting the education with skills and also the teach back and then relaying concerns back to our team where further review of education um, is needed. Becky, I really liked what you said about being afraid of food now from this point on. I think it's so true, and especially what I've seen in the ER, that any little morsel that a parent lets their child eat becomes an issue and with the carb counting. And I just think that being able to reassure families that food is good, I think is also another important piece of information to make sure we're teaching these families from the beginning of the diagnosis. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And, you know, nutritionally, it's really the kind of common sense nutrition advice that we all know, you know, focusing on whole grains, quality of carbohydrates, fruits, vegetables, lean proteins, it just becomes a more thoughtful process for these families. So with them, I really try and break it down to focusing on just building the basic skills of carb counting and, and 
unpacking some of that fear around food. You know, um, there are some small changes we will have families make right off the bat, but generally um, just reinforcing that there's no need for that fear. I will say we probably rely very heavily on you guys with that. I We don't really restrict much downstairs on that first meal. Some people will count the carbs and will be like, there's a hundred carbs. Are they really going to eat this? But I will say we, we kind of let that first meal slide. We cover what we need. We, we cover it, but we really rely on you guys upstairs on pushing the, you know, nutrition education stuff. We don't have a nutritionist obviously down there. So I'll apologize in advance. We provide you, we leave you with a lot of that education for upstairs. No, and I think that's exactly right. You guys have a limited amount of time with families and it's, it's an acute situation. And, you know, we want to make sure the child is able to eat a meal that they feel happy and satisfied with. And, and I think that that's not the time to, to focus on having the perfect nutrition meal. I think the, the program and the support that we have set up is really phenomenal. I'm interested on the parents' perspective. We are really overloading them with a lot of brand new information. I'm wondering, have you received feedback from the parents or the families about what kind of a job we did with the education and support? So we do have a uh, patient family satisfaction survey that is provided to families upon discharge. And so we're able to get some of that feedback. And you know, some families will provide feedback too during the education sessions that it can be very overwhelming. So the focus is really to provide the survival skills education what the family needs to know, because they need to be able to safely take their child home and provide diabetes care. And they are not gonna learn everything about diabetes before they leave. We make that very clear to the patients and the, and the parents and other caregivers that are involved to um, try to you know, alleviate the fear that they have to know everything. And, you know, I always kind of use this analogy with families. Um, I started it several years ago and I continue to, to do it today. But I mentioned to families when they walked through the door at children's, whether it was the emergency room or, you know, a direct admission to the floor, think of it as we threw this 1000 piece puzzle, this diabetes puzzle on the floor, the little tiny pieces. And in their days with us, the two days of education, I asked them to look at, we're putting that puzzle together, but only the frame of the puzzle is being put together in their first initial days of education. And the other pieces to the puzzle keep going in over the next weeks and months as they continue to get the support and education from the members of the outpatient team. So it's an ongoing process and we're just the start of that. And I reassure them that we don't expect them to know everything, but there are certain topics that they do need to know. And we tell them what those topics are. You know, when we are doing teach back, really give them positive reinforcement so that they know that they have that basic knowledge to start and go home with, and they'll continue to build the knowledge over time. You know, we have a call-in number. So for all our new families, they'll be calling in every day to review their child's blood glucose and insulin and ask non-urgent questions until that first outpatient appointment. So the daily call for all our new families up until the first outpatient appointment makes another connection for families to have support um, in that process where everything can be so overwhelming. 
but the content can still be overwhelming regardless whether we're focusing on survival skills. So we do hear that be feedback and we're actually trying to even modify our approaches. We just had a staff meeting the other day just to look at how can we even just narrow down the topics even more because sometimes the feedback comes from the outpatient team letting us know, you know, like things are very overwhelming for some families. And so we really try to modify our approach to really support the needs of the families. I really appreciate your uh, analogy to the puzzle. And I think that's a great way to present it to families. You're not gonna learn everything while you're in with us. And that said, I think it's a great analogy for us staff as well, because I think a, a number of the staff I work with sometimes feel a little overwhelmed when they're presented with a new onset patient. One of the great things um, that came from one of your colleagues provided this kind of like a map, like a, uh, an outline for us for the day for a new onset diabetes patient. And it, it's, we have it laminated up on our unit and a big thing was getting the nursing staff to relax and understand their role and how I think they, they feel a lot of the questions the parents pose to them are challenging. And the result of the educate recent edu some of the recent education from um, the DNEs and using this guide has helped the staff nurses realize that our role is teaching skills. And like Jen had mentioned earlier down in the ED, encouraging parents to write down their questions. Um, so that we're not providing uh, like anecdotal that we're leaving the um, more difficult questions for the experts for social work and for uh, nutrition and for our diabetes nurse educators. Yes. And, you know, that's such a, a key point, Teresa, because we don't expect the nurses to be providing a, a education that they're not comfortable with. That That is truly, you know, the, the role of the inpatient diabetes team to be there. One thing that I think is really helpful too is, you know, nurses have a lot of experience and they also have familiarity, um, whether they themselves have diabetes or another family member of their own. You, you want to be very careful not to put that information on a family when it's not applicable to their story. And it's really, you know, we want to individualize the education to the immediate needs of the family. So it's always very helpful to have the nurses supporting the skills and having families get more comfortable with that and not ever make them feel like they have to, you know, expand on their teaching. And if they can't answer a question, they, all they need to do is direct it back to us. And we're happy to um, come back and review or provide the nurse with the answer at that moment because families will have more questions after we leave for sure. And as they're doing the skills. So it is a lot that the nurses have to face. So I'm glad, you know, again, it's that collaborative process that we have to work together to support the learning of the patients and families. And we're not trying to put the burden on the nurses to be able to do it all. I also think it's important for everyone to hear, like you're not going to be able to answer all the questions and it's okay to say, I don't know this answer, but I know where to find it. And I will get you in touch with the, the right person to help answer that because I think you want to be able to provide that information, but then sometimes you provide misinformation. So I think it's okay for nurses to say that and know it's okay to say that and just who to ask the right questions to. It's better to not answer it than to answer it incorrectly. And then you guys are backtracking on that when you're coming into the room. So, so true. And we actually have encountered situations where misinformation has been provided. And it's really hard when a family is like a sponge, they're trying to take everything in. And so I agree. And thank you, Jen. It is just, you know, asking the question and identifying the resource who can help provide it. And it's totally okay to say, I don't know. And families will respect that. So thank you so much for mentioning that. 
And I totally agree with that too, especially with this diagnosis, we're learning new discoveries every single day and even the advancement of technology. And I'm thinking of like the types of insulin, if there's an insulin pump, if there's a continuous glucose monitor, this kind of technology is advancing every day. And, you know, nurses at the bedside are not going to know or be up to date with the most recent of findings. So we do need to look to the experts for help and to help us answer questions. But like Jen said, we should know who to ask and where to go. So we're very fortunate here to be able to have such great resources. Agreed. We do know a lot, but it's great to have all our uh, resources that we can reach out to that are the specialists that can fill in the gaps. Any of our experts that are here with us, do you have anything that you want to share uh, with our listeners about, you know, different responsibilities or roles or anything else you'd want our, our listeners to know about your roles as parts of the diabetes team? One of the things that our team does is we complete a health literacy assessment with all our families prior to starting the education. And this really helps identify if there's any limitations in health literacy so that we can further tailor the education approach and really individualize it to the family's uh, learning needs. And it, it's been very helpful that, you know, we have our clinical education informatics team that has provided all of us with family education sheets that are written in the appropriate uh, fifth and sixth grade levels to try to um, enhance the communication of health information to all our patients and families at, at Children's. But typically when providing education to our diabetes patient population, it, we really have found that completing health literacy assessments prior to education really promptly identifies any risks for or actual health literacy limitations. And it really allows us to use different types of visual tools to support the education because it's so complex. The diabetes information is complex and we really need to know it ahead of time how we can simplify that communication of information to help support these families in their learning. And so that's one thing that you know we started back, I think it was back in 2016, where we began trialing a health literacy assessment tool, and then um, we've been using it ever since. It's been very, very, very helpful. And so that, that's one thing I like to share because it's something that we are able to individualize the learning and act properly because the length of stay is really like two days of education. And so we try to maintain that time frame too and we're, when we're able to modify our approaches appropriately for each family it helps us stay on track with the education and not have to have a lengthy uh, time period that the family is inpatient. I can speak a little bit to, to my role, and I, I know I've covered quite a lot of it through talking about day treatment assessment, but I think a huge part of my role and how it often differs to a lot of my other colleagues on different services is this really rapid turnaround. And so knowing as much as we can about the family as early as we can in terms of things that will impact their time here, the type of education tools we want to use, their ability to cope with the situation, you know, addressing some of those concerns that I spoke about earlier, like concerns about insulin or hypoglycemia from previous experiences, misconceptions, um, or just flat out normal, oh my goodness, my child was fine yesterday and now they have type 1 diabetes. 
all of that stuff is really helpful to know and needs to be found out quite soon in order to keep them sort of on track to leave on time. And of course, we would never want to rush anyone, but at the same time, families don't want to be here longer than they need to be. So alongside the health literacy assessment, I do my biopsychosocial assessment for every family that has a new onset diabetes patient in the family. And some of the big things that I try and find out, who are the primary caregivers and can they be available for education? And anything that I can do to make that happen, because that can be a really big factor in terms of delayed discharge. Um, if people don't understand that they need to be here, if people, especially now during COVID-19, have jobs that they cannot just miss without losing or cannot miss without losing significant income. So that's a, a big part of what I try and figure out. And then positives and negatives, I suppose, strengths of the family, what's going to help them get through this what supports do they have? Have they just moved here and they don't have any people to reach out to? How can we connect them to resources like support groups or good websites and books, um, mentor programs, that kind of thing? And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, people get diagnosed with diabetes totally out of the blue usually, which is a bit traumatic. But it also means people come in and say, I was supposed to have elbow surgery yesterday, but my daughter got admitted to the hospital and now I can't go. All that kind of stuff that's affecting their stress levels is important for us to be aware of so we can try and, and put them at ease and give them a work letter or provide some financial assistance where we can, trying to kind of get a sense of their baseline when they come in, because if we don't address as much of that as we can, they're not going to be in a place to absorb information. And occasionally we've had you know a full day of education that's almost wasted because they've got so much going on and, and we haven't had a time to kind of work through that with them. So that's a lot of my role is the biopsychosocial assessment and obviously the psychoeducation. How do kids normally respond to this? How can we support them? A lot of parents will say, what's a normal response? And I say, well, I don't know. There is a normal response. Everybody's different, but there's a huge range. And how do I help my child tell their friends they're embarrassed? Things like that. I do a lot of work on managing diabetes in school. Uh, reassuring parents, you know, that their child is not sick, unless they are sick, unless they have DKA, but for the most part are not sick and they can go back into their activities and trying to plant that seed of this does not mean I'm a sick person who can't live my life. This means I've got to do this stuff to stay healthy and it's important, but let's get back into things as soon as is feasible. Those are the things that I work on. To expand on what Anna said, Child Life Specialist is also very much a, a support that can help us enhance the child's coping and, and working on some of those factors with fear of needles and, and the new routine of blood glucose monitoring and all these new skills that affect the child, not just the parent learning about them, but the child coping with all of this too. So Child Life Specialist is very helpful. It's changed now with, with all the COVID restrictions. It's not um, you know, kids are not going to the playroom like they used to and, and having that kind of one-on-one, -on -one, but we still have the support um, from the other team members to help the families and the patient cope. Also case management is very key in setting up those community supports, whether it's visiting nursing or other resources to um, provide additional support to families when they're at home. And many times Anna is identifying the different needs for these families through her assessments of um, other resources that can be helpful to make the transition from hospital to home. And then the school nurse getting back into, you know, a lot of the children are doing hybrid learning or just remote learning. So it's been a very different year for everybody, but uh, the school nurse has been very much um, involved in the process too of transitioning that child back 
um, into the home routine, the school routine. So it really is a collaborative process through the inpatient team, all the resources throughout the hospital, as well as in the community. I'll speak a bit to a nutritional perspective now on, on kind of what my role is with families. As I said earlier, I think it's often a lot of reassurance that they don't necessarily need to go home and throw out all of the food in their homes. You know, I have a lot of families who are very motivated to make healthy uh, dietary changes, which, which I think it can be a valuable time to do that. But I try and level set with them that, you know, while they're here, I'm really focusing on teaching them the skills to count carbohydrates so that they can administer insulin safely uh, to cover the carbohydrates when they get home. You know, I also, of course, talk about just general healthy eating, different qualities of carbohydrates. One example I love to give to families is that an apple and a brownie, they have the same amount of carbs, but your body is going to respond very differently to those. So focusing on just quality of carbohydrates, I typically will try and introduce the concept of the glycemic index, which is that kind of quality of carbohydrates and how they impact um, your blood sugar levels. And the kind of big nutrition change we ask families to make right off the bat is to take out any sugar-sweetened beverages, um, including juice, unless it's being used to treat a low blood sugar. Again, talk about, you know, the difference between apple juice, which is going to rapidly bring up your blood sugar, and an apple, which of course is fine to have. Um, There's fiber and other nutrition in there. So really trying to level set with families and reassure them that they'll have two weeks to be home practicing these skills and trying to make some of these nutritional changes, but they'll follow up with nutrition again very soon to focus on some of those longer term health changes. And again, I think like Anna and Jean have said, it's a lot of meeting families where they're at and, and kind of providing reassurance. You know, oftentimes families ask, is, is it our fault? Like, were they eating poorly? And this is why they have type one diabetes. And it's reassuring them again, like there's nothing that they have done here. That's excellent, Becky. Thanks. And you mentioned about outpatient support. Is that mostly through endocrine clinic? We have outpatient clinical nutritionists working with families. It is. Yes. Anna's shaking her head. Yes. Um, yeah. There is. It, it's wonderful. Um, we have a number of specific uh, dietitians who work on diabetes with outpatient, um, one of whom used to be the inpatient diabetes dietitian. So really great wealth of experience with those outpatient dietitians. And it's really a comprehensive team approach. We have the pretty much we have the inpatient team in terms of the diabetes nurse educator, uh, the nutritionist, the social worker and the endocrine doctors as well the families will also see those same type of members in terms of an educator, nutritionist, social work, and endocrinologist. So they're going to have that comprehensive follow-up. And, you know, we communicate any specific factors that are important for the outpatient team to know to help that transition again from that hospital setting with the initial teaching and the ongoing education and support from the outpatient team members. In terms of the inpatient diabetes nurse educator, we are there seven days a week that we can be reached by Connect Messenger um, just through the inpatient diabetes nurse educator, either role one or role two. And also our page number is uh, 0090. And also our phone, which is 0909. This has been awesome. I think for myself, one of the huge takeaways that you do an assessment, health literacy assessment, I want to do that for every single patient who comes in. That's brilliant. It started because we had a family with a very, very significant limitations in health literacy back in late 2015. And it just prompted the need. I, I was on that day and I'm like, we, we, we have to do better here. And um, so it really kind of 
started a whole process of how we adapted our teaching by doing that assessment first. So it's been very, very successful in identifying limitations or even just risks that we've been able to individualize teaching in uh, what's best for the family. And is that tool generated specifically for diabetes patients or is it a, an available tool that anyone it's a, can use? It's a valid tool that's available. So it's called the newest vital sign. And one of my colleagues, Melissa Kubrensky and I, through the help of uh, clinical education informatics, looked at different tools, that valid tools that were available. And the newest vital sign was most applicable to information that families are reading labels. It's, it's reading a nutrition label and questions that relate to that. And it was simple, it was short, and it incorporated numeracy and literacy skills. And so it definitely applied more to our kind of teaching topics as well. So it's been a helpful tool. And, you know, there's always questions of the tool that you're like, oh, that doesn't really apply so much, but still it, it gives what the information that we need to get started. No, this is great. And you have the health literacy, and then you also look at like some of the cultural, like I think of, I think about a lot of the cultural barriers, you know, we see people from all over the world. And as Becky was talking, and I'm thinking about like the changes and just understanding people's different preferences and trying to accommodate different cultural eating patterns, things like that. There's so much to be considered. It is because those can all create barriers if they're not addressed. Anna has been instrumental in identifying different factors that families will raise in her assessments, you know, different cultural beliefs towards, towards wellness and illness. And diabetes in some cultures is, is a very negative condition and is looked at as more of a fatal condition and there's nothing that you can do. And so to really respect what the family's views are, but to try to show them that this is something that can be managed very successfully without offending, you know, their cultural perspectives and, and how they view things. So all that part is all taken into consideration in the assessments because we don't can't just sit there and provide the information without understanding the language needs, the cultural needs, also the health literacy needs to really support families in their learning and understand that you're kind of building their toolbox, so to speak, so that they can do this at home and, and be independent and successful with it. Jean, I think that's such an important fact that you bring up the, these cultural differences and, you know, cultural dietary preferences and whatnot, because sometimes when these patients present to the ER in DKA, we call them non-compliant. Yes. You know, but they're really not yep. according to their culture, but according mm -hmm. to the way we perceive it, they're not doing what we tell them to do. Right. And the literature really tries to get rid of that word now, non-compliant, you know, because it's something that people have challenges as to why they may not be able to adhere to their prescribed regimen and, and the different management needs. You know, it, it can be very, very challenging, but, you know, we try to do our best to individualize and understand what the issues are and how can we overcome those or simplify something so that this family is capable of taking care of themselves and having optimal health outcomes because it is so complex and you have to manage it. And it's really very challenging for some families when they don't have the resources and they lack an understanding of what to do. But I think you're, this program is treating the patient holistically and including the family and the environment. Mm -hmm. And I really think we could do a better job 
doing that with every diagnosis, not just diabetes. I think that also comes perhaps more naturally to a program that focuses on a, a chronic illness because there's just no way to ignore a lot of those factors when you're sort of going, okay, let's give you a schedule for the day that involves you know, at least six diabetes related activities, you have to take into account the, that broader perspective. And I like to think we would do that anyway, but it, I, I think if we kind of are forced to in a way that other specialties maybe are not as much. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been amazing. I want to thank you, all three of you for your time. We really appreciate it. And all right. Thank you so much. Good. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Bye. Take care. All right. Bye. Thank you. This Small Talk podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital with support from our emergency department and inpatient medicine programs. If you would like to be a guest on Small Talk, email Denise Downey. We'd love to have you as a guest and have you share your expertise with the entire Boston Children's community. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk podcast.